is happening now. We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's a snow day in Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Lisa Poleski and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Tom McKay is on the board. We were supposed to be in class today, but we can't find the school. Here's Scott Thompson. Hey, look, something neat to talk about that doesn't involve COVID-19. We've talked about uh, the official residence of the Prime Minister, uh, I guess, off and on for years. Uh, The Prime Minister, I don't think he, well, he didn't. He never moved into uh, 24, instead went to uh, directly to Rideau uh, Cottage, which has had lots of renos since all of that. And uh, for years, many have made fun of 24 Sussex and the fact that that it needs so much work. And uh, in the Toronto Star today, Susan Delacourt has a column uh, as well talking about what we should do in regard to this is it time to face this issue uh, put a for sale sign on it knock it down make it into a museum what have you uh, Susan Delacourt with us national columnist for the Toronto Star Susan thanks for the time I hope you're well thank you for having me so why is this such a hot uh, topic why is this such a hot potato why doesn't somebody whatever prime minister does just move on and do whatever you want to do with it or is it a historic site now Okay. I, as for why it is, um, I've been in Ottawa a long time. I'm not going to say exactly when, because I'll sound like an antique mm-hmm. myself. But um, as long as I have been here, prime ministers have been apologizing for that place and not doing what's right by it. Uh, it is, uh, I, I live in the neighborhood. I uh, go by it most days. Um, and it has fallen into disrepair. It's an embarrassment uh, that we have let a prime minister's residence evolved into this. Um, and I think it's time to move on. I, I I should say I love history. I love the monuments and the old buildings in Ottawa. But, but 24 Sussex Drive, I think, has become kind of a national embarrassment that uh, it wasn't kept up. And uh, it's time for it to go. And, and is, any, and is anything being... better? Is is there anything being done to it at all now, or is it just sitting there abandoned? It's not totally abandoned. Things are going on. I couldn't tell you exactly what's going on in there, but if you drive by, you know, there's um, there's staff going in and out. I think, you know, it, it's sort of like a skeleton crew keeping, mm. you know, the lights on. Um, but the Prime Minister uh, in 2015, or late uh, 2015, moved into Rideau Cottage, which is on the grounds of Rideau Hall. And everybody's now form- more familiar with that because we saw him during the pandemic on his, um, on his front step every day there. It's a far more secure place. Uh, it's, um, it is unofficially now the residence of the Prime Minister, and I think we should just wrap our minds around the idea that it probably is the better place than 24 Sussex Drive. 
Because uh, at one time, and I remember when I was younger driving through Ottawa when it still was the residence and thinking, my goodness, it is very close. Like, it's very it's very much in a residential neighborhood. And look, there it is there. Uh, and there was like an RCMP car there. And this was long before they put the security up around it that was in it when there were prime ministers there. Considering the amount of money that's already been spent on Rideau Cottage, is it pretty safe to say that is just the residence now? I mean, it's it's amazing how we just kind of back into these things. It's yeah. It, it looks like it to me. It's uh, it certainly changed since the Trudeaus moved in there. You know, they, uh, you used to be able to wander the entire grounds of Rideau Hall. Famously, another governor general had stopped that. Then it was started again. Uh, but the the prime minister's residence. It's not a cottage, by the way, in a way that yeah. any of us would think of. It's ten thousand square feet. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a huge place. And it had it now has rings and rings of security fencing around it too, so that if an intruder wanted to come in, as we saw in the summer of 2020, uh, you, you couldn't just barrel in there. 24 Sussex Drive, as you say, is very close to the street. Rick Murphy yeah. uh, put on Twitter uh, over the weekend that you could throw a snowball from the street and hit the door, and he's right. Yeah. So um, that being said, uh, this decision may be already one of those, like many things in politics, it just kind of happens. And, you know, the longer it remains the same, uh, the more it becomes tradition. So I guess the real question is, what's the significance of 24 Sussex? Uh, because as a residence, who's going to spend that much money when there's already one there at Rideau Cottage, as you're saying? Uh, so is it worth keeping and restoring for the little bit of history? I mean, it was only used since the 50s, I think. So uh, right. is it yeah. worth keeping for the significance that it did have as some sort of a museum? Because, you know, Ottawa's got lots of museums. Or is it just you, you just get rid of it and sell it to somebody else? Yeah, I've seen the arguments about that. It would take an awful lot of money to restore it. So I think it would have to have a purpose. And, you know, there is there is a former prime minister's residence in Ottawa that is a museum, the Laurier House. Um Wilfred Laurier lived over in, in another area. Um, I I don't know what I would do with it. They, Carleton University ran a you know a, a contest or a, a thing to to um, gather up submissions for what to do with it. It's on a it's lovely real estate in Ottawa. It sits on the banks of the Ottawa yeah. River, which is another thing that makes it insecure. By the way, yeah. Um, one I was told by somebody who worked for a former prime minister that. People are regularly arrested for trying to climb up that thing mm. in the residence. So it's um, it's a beautiful view, beautiful piece of real estate. Yeah. But I don't think it's ever going to be the residence for a prime minister again. I, I think I was taught back in the days of political science that our constitution gets changed two ways. One is the unwritten version and one is the written. I think what you're saying there too is we're, we already have We've already done it. We've changed the official residence. We just haven't written it down yet. Exactly. So, Susan, the fact that nothing has been done to date, does that mean nobody cares? The fact Is it like at one time nobody wants to spe- see anybody spend a whole great deal of money on something that that is wasteful, but at the end of the day, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of people really lining up to preserve this other than those his- historians who would like that. Uh, the fact that nothing's been done, does anybody care? Well, I don't think you're going to see the political class stand up for it, unfortunately. And I think that is, I, you know, 10 years ago even, I would have said, you know, somebody's got to 
just do the maintenance on this thing. And successive prime ministers have not because they feared the backlash. That doesn't say good things about our politics that, you know, that they couldn't argue the case for maintaining the building. But um, we're spending a lot of money to fix up Parliament right now. Centre Block is closed mm. down. Um, I I just don't think that it, we're going to see any political leader saying, you know, let's spend the money to fix up 24 Sussex Drive. Susan Delacourt with us, national columnist for the Toronto Star. Here's what we should do with the Prime Minister's residence. Tear it down. Any feedback on this? Any uh, any nasty feedback oh, yeah. on this? <laughs> not, not, not nasty. Not nasty. But I'd say that there are history buffs. And I, I say in the column, I am one. I am actually one of those yeah. geeks who has gone on the history walks around this neighborhood here. I love the history around here. It's a very rich, um, great history. 24 Sussex Drive, as you pointed out, is not part of it. For all these yeah. years I've been in Ottawa, prime ministers have been apologizing for it. Uh, and uh, it's actually not that great a house. It's, uh, you know, there are a lot nicer ones in Ottawa, too. And Susan Delacourt, very nice place. the column is in your Toronto Star. Uh, Susan, always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, you too. All right, uh, big snow outside. What's the future hold? Is it over? Let's bring in Anthony Farnell, Global News Meteorologist. He is with us now. Anthony, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, I'm doing well. It's been uh, it's been one of those days for everybody, but uh, yeah, I've been uh, on my feet since about six this morning when when the worst of that snow was moving through. So uh, I know it's a very busy day for guys like you when this happens because everybody wants uh, a piece of your time. Is it over? Where do we sit with this now? Yeah, there's still some winds that are gusting in the 40 to 60 kilometer per hour range, and and that's blowing the snow around. It was uh, very light and fluffy, even though it still was tough to shovel just because of the amount of it. Overall, it was uh, what we call a a very low snow to liquid ratio. So uh, we ended up seeing quite a bit more snow than was expected, and uh, now it's just blowing around. So that's kind of uh, where we're at with this storm as it moves away into Atlantic Canada. When did it peak for us in southern Ontario? Well, it was uh, the Niagara area that really uh, set the tone overnight as we had numerous lightning strikes there. And and that band that was producing snow uh, at over 10 centimeters an hour, which is just unheard of outside of uh, lake effect snow. So when you get that type of activity moving, even for two hours over your city or your neighborhood, it can pile things up. And the timing, of course, couldn't have been worse right before the morning commute. And uh, the snow continued for much of the day, but a lot lighter. It was just that initial wave that moved through that, that we really totaled things up quickly. And how far did this stretch? What was the path? Well, it it stretched all the way to the southern United States. There were tornadoes yesterday in Florida. That was the uh, warm side of it. And then ice storm for the Carolinas. We had snow back in Cleveland, of course, southern Ontario. Windsor didn't see anything from this system. Uh, And then the snow is still ongoing in Kingston and Ottawa. There was a blizzard warning there as well. Uh, Montreal getting heavy snow. And it's uh, mostly rain and wind, or at least changing to that in Atlantic Canada. So this is encompassing uh, basically the eastern third of the country right now. How bizarre is it Windsor didn't get nailed by this, especially considering where they are, and they normally do get hit with these, don't they, you know, in the western part of the province? We 
we exactly we look off to to our west and south uh, to see these storms coming but in this case on friday the system was actually over minnesota and then it nosedived all the way down to the uh, gulf of mexico and then right back up the east coast so it was an unusual track but it, it put areas like Hamilton, uh, the rest of the uh, greater Toronto, Hamilton area, right in that bullseye for, for the heaviest band for, for much of the overnight and morning. So any idea what the measurements are yet, Anthony? How much did we get? Yeah, we're, we're just starting to, to get a, a more complete list. Uh, I do see some, some winners as far as snow amounts. Uh, just east of Toronto in uh, Whitby, 52 centimeters I see. St. Catharines, 50 centimeters uh hamilton anywhere from 35 to 45 the escarpment of course a little bit more uh so yeah this is this is in those top five type snowstorm single day events that we've seen in 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 history in the last uh, 100 years so uh, that, something that, that we're all living through and it's, that was my next uh, question anthony how does this compare to others because i you know this morning i was hearing that they were closing down certain highways um, not only because they were just literally jammed with, with traffic that had stopped, but they needed the traffic off it just to get the plows through. Yeah, and that, of course, has to do with timing. Once these cars are, are stuck and, and stranded on a highway, it, it works, it feeds back on itself. The plows can't go because the cars are there. The cars can't go because the plows aren't there. So uh, they had to close down these highways, uh, 401 in particular, which is a massive thoroughfare, uh, the Gardner, the Don Valley Parkway. This uh, is something that, that just hasn't happened, and uh, now it's finally opening back up. But it just showed you how fast and how hard that snow was at the worst possible time on a, on a Monday morning. So I'll let you go, Anthony, but for the next 24 hours, it looks like it's moving on and just the winds to worry about. The winds to worry about for a few more hours. It's a chilly night tonight. It is actually going to warm up. We're going to be well above freezing on Wednesday morning to melt some of this snow, but then uh, the deep freeze moves back in, and uh, I think it's going to be an active second half of January. So uh, keep the shovel, the snowblower on, on standby with this one. All right, Anthony Fresnel with us, Global, uh, Global News Meteorologist. Make sure you're watching tonight for more on all of this. Thanks so much, Anthony. Be well. Hey, thanks a lot. Take care. Uh, you might remember prior to the election, uh, there was a Canada-China committee that was formed, a parliamentary committee to uh, investigate relations and uh, what has gone seriously wrong and uh, when this whole relationship between the two countries went off the rails and how how do you get it back. Uh, uh, and now there's uh, more emphasis to start that thing up again. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute and, was, and is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Feeling good, Scott. Love the snow. Yeah, it's great when you don't have to go anywhere, eh, Charles? Uh, uh, shut down, uh, this committee was. Was that due to the election, and why the interest now to fire it back up? Well, you know, we had expected that that committee would resume uh, after Parliament came back. It's a special committee, so it has to be restarted uh, after every dissolution. But then, you know, there was uh, an incident of Chinese disinformation uh, about uh, conservative policy, conservative party policy relating to uh, establishing um, a foreign in- influence uh, transparency act or a foreign agent registry act, which would have required that people who are in positions of influence over policy should have to declare transparently if they are receiving benefits from a foreign state, you know, specifically China. So the stiff information came out and 
was all over the Chinese language internet in Canada suggesting that this law would require that all persons of Chinese origin in Canada who have anything to do with China would have to register their activities with the with the Canadian government and would be subject to all sorts of sanctions and that was completely untrue but the feeling is that that effective disinformation campaign resulted in three uh, conservative candidates who had come in in the last election with uh, you know strong support losing their seats in favor of the liberals so the the upshot was i think that the conservatives felt that you know going down heavy on china um, causes you to lose seats there didn't seem to be as much interest in trying to find out who was putting out this disinformation and putting a stop to it and then they decided you know that they would not support the uh, reconstitution of the Canada China committee on the basis that there was already an Afghanistan committee and they didn't have enough time and resources to do it which you know was not very convincing now we've got a situation where there's been a bit of a revolt in the conservative backbench um particularly Garnet Jenis uh, uh a member from the Edmonton area who was very active on the Canada-China committee, plus a few liberals who are saying that this committee should come back. So the Conservatives have now done something of a backpedal, which is they say, well, we'll reestablish the Canada-China Special Committee when the Afghanistan Committee is finished, which will be in June. Well, for one thing, June's a long time away in political time. And for another thing, that's just before Parliament rests for the summer. But anyway, that's what they said, is it's coming back and will resume its good work. Uh, what does it say when uh, political parties don't want to speak up against the Chinese Communist Party because they feel it would cost them votes because the Chinese Communist Party is interfering with elections? Is it not already interference <laughs> because they're taking that position? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact that the Chinese, you know, we assume it's the Chinese authorities because the disinformation certainly served Chinese interests. Uh, you know, we don't have any any smoking gun that shows that this disinformation came out of Beijing. We don't know where it came from. You cannot trace it. You know, the the websites that are that are disseminating this and the Chinese uh, WeChat program don't attribute it to anybody. It's all pen names and you know untraceable IPs. So. We don't have evidence that, that the disinformation originated in Beijing, but it happened very coincidentally when it looked in the course of the election that the, that the Conservatives might gain a minority government. All of a sudden, the disinformation came out, and all of a sudden, the candidates in Chinese, Canadian-Chinese-dominated ridings in Richmond and Markham saw their support cratering. So it's awfully coincidental but uh, of course, you know, we should we should not allow a foreign state to effectively interfere in a Canadian election. And the fact that we're not doing anything about it suggests that they'll probably do more of that kind of thing next election. Again, it, it's, you know, people are talking about looking for proof where we're already seeing this. This is not getting better. This is actually getting worse, is it not? Yeah, I mean, all the more reason to have a China-to-China committee where this stuff is aired and and the government is uh, advised to take some action against it rather than, you know, hiding it under the rug and hoping that it'll go away. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people in influence in Canada who who um, have connections with China, some, some of them quite lucrative, and don't want to rock the boat or make the Chinese embassy unhappy. So where situation, are isn't it? You know, like, oh God, you talk about blue, blue Monday. I mean, this is about as blue as it gets. You know, a foreign power interfering in Canada, and we are not. No one seems to care. We don't have yeah. enough guts to do anything about it. 
So where are Chinese Canadians on this? Do they understand what's happening? Are they, you know, because now they're here. So where do they go? What side do they choose? How, how, where are they on all of this? Well, of course, I mean, they, you know, the two of the members that lost their seats were, in fact, ethnic Chinese Canadians, you know, loyal Canadians whose family came from China. And, you know, the Chinese state is harassing and menacing these people and threatening their families in China if they don't cooperate with what the Chinese. But clearly people, but clearly people, but clearly people here are helping them with that. Uh, you mean well? I mean, they're certainly well. They're having the, the influence, right? Functioning, functioning in Canada. There's no question yeah. about it, and we should be protecting our Chinese Canadians from this sort of of uh, state-sponsored harassment. You know, the Chinese Canadians come here because they want a a free life in a free country. That's why they're yeah. here. And a lot of the Chinese Canadian families in Canada go back to the very early years of Canada. You know, they built the railway, they established mm-hmm. the ferries. So, you know, there's certainly no suggestion that any that the people of Chinese origin in Canada are are agents for the People's Republic of China. They're Canadian. Then how are they becoming I guess I guess the point is Charles is how are they becoming influenced then? If they can recognize it when when this comes across, how are they how are they swaying elections? Well, I think that there are quite a few newer immigrants to Canada from China whose socialization has been in the Chinese system who get their information from Chinese language sources and we don't, you know, our government doesn't seem to have the capacity to monitor those sources for mm. disinformation. So, you know, they have been they have been deceived. In other words, you know, what what they were saying on the Chinese internet about the Conservative Party platform and this proposed legislation was completely and utterly false. Not a question of sort of political opinion or whatever. It was lies. And people mm. were taken in by that. And, and, you know, it serves the Chinese government's interest who said, look, you know, you're, you're ethnic Chinese. You're not part of Canada. Be loyal to the motherland, you know, which is just disgraceful you know we want our yeah. we want our canadians to to identify with canada regardless of their race or language right charles burton senior fellow center for advancing canada's interests abroad at the mcdonald laurier institute charles as always thanks for the time be well take care on the board tom mckay in the newsroom lisa paleski and dave woodard making their way around the big round table for uh, the big round table, and all the table heads are here. Bill, by the way, Tom, feel free to jump in if you'd like. Uh, good to see you all, table heads. Hope you're doing well. Did you get shoveled out, dug in, dug out, all that sort of stuff? Or how are you? Are you sore yet? Oh, yeah. Advil was definitely part of the breakfast routine. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it took quite a while, man. Uh, I, w- I think it took me like a half an hour just to get from my front door to the garage door to then even be able to get the garage door open from there. Oh. Uh, it, it, it's quite the uh, it, it's it's quite the snowstorm. I, I can't remember one where we've had this big. And you tell me, Dave, uh, do you ever remember being in a situation where they literally closed the roads and said uh, there's too much uh, accidents, too much whatever? We got to get the plows out there and closing the roads to get the plows in. I mean, no. I don't think I can't remember the last time I heard about that. No, I don't think I've ever heard of that. In fact, I remember uh, actually we we're I was looking this up. There hasn't been a blizzard warning in Hamilton since something like 2011. Uh, yeah. and, and even then, it wasn't nearly as bad as it was now. So it's, uh, you know, once in a decade type storm. And I know. Uh, you were speaking with Anthony Farnell earlier, who was saying the same. So it, it's it's been one heck of a storm, and uh, I'm I'm afraid to think that we could be in for more of this, you know, pretty soon. 
Yeah, we're going to get some mild temperatures, but then it's going to stay cold. So it looks like this is going to be here for a while as a base for everything else. But, you know, whenever you hear the big uh, snowstorms are coming, you think, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. But it's never really as bad as what they <laughs> they say. But getting up this morning, uh, I thought, oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's for sure. All right, poll question of the day. Let's start with it. How are you may, uh, marking the snow day? 49% still working. Obviously, all of us are doing the same. But let me ask you this. What are you doing when you get home? Uh, Lisa, we'll start with you. Uh, well, I mean, uh, I uh, was initially not even supposed to be in today. So, yeah, I'm actually, uh, I was trying to help That's out. That's right. You're, you're of, in for Diana today. Well, she's completely snowed in. And, you know, I'm I'm lucky enough to live near a major transit route. Mind you, uh, four, actually five HSR buses stopped and stuck in the snow between Hess and Queen Street. Like, it was, it was absurd. So, if I can get home, okay, uh, I will probably just be lying down and watching TV uh, with a nice uh, cup of tea or something because, yeah, that, yeah this snow absolutely. is brutal. And, you know, the thing you have to remember, too, is to uh, you don't want to be going out even for the next uh, day or so because it's going to take crews, uh, city crews, like a, a tremendous long, a tre- tremendously long time to even just get through the backlog, get into the side streets and whatever. Uh, I think we're going to be like this for a while. All right, let's move on. Uh, oh, wait, let me ask you this in regard to the snow. And, Dave, we'll start with you. Should the kids be off on a snow day? Or should they be learning online? Uh, obviously, during a global pandemic, uh, you know, we've learned to do this. And many said that the joy of this will be this will be the elimination of a snow of snow days because now you can just flip to online. Are you surprised that we're not doing that, Dave? I'm of two minds of this, Scott. Uh, one, I think that, you know, we had snow days when we were kids. And I think that it's one of the greatest things to have happened uh, yeah. You know, in the history of school is to be able to have snow days and, and not that it stopped you from, you know, hanging out with your friends and making snow forts mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. Uh, but it, it, it was nice to have that kind of unexpected day off. But on the other time, the other uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, we've got the technology to be doing school remotely. So why not? Uh, can I jump in uh, on this Interesting one, point. Go ahead. Yeah, because uh, here's my thing. I'm biased on this one because I am fairly young and the snow days are very, very much a treasured memory for me. But I got to tell you, snow days, they actually are very, very helpful for a child because you got five days of nonstop work followed by two days of two, technically one day, if you're really being practical here, of rest. So having that unexpected snow day during the week, that's an unexpected day of rest that kids sorely need, especially as they get into high school. Good point. And, you know, many will say, I think we've had enough on learning, uh, online learning for a while. Lisa, what are your thoughts? Uh, snow day. Should uh, they be behind the laptop or they should be out there building snowmen? No, they should be out there enjoying it. I was really happy to hear that uh, Hamilton's uh, two boards declared it was a, a snow day because, you know, yeah. I have a sister-in-law who's a teacher. So, of course, I want her to be OK. And uh, my nephews, I know how excited they are to get out there and play in the snow. Um, it is a shame that, you know, especially with all the online learning to have another day of it for, you know, even especially when kids thought they were going to be going back to school to see their friends. So I think a snow day was the right move in this situation. 
Actually, my uh, after I made him shovel the walk, uh, the my my son took off, and they, they were going tobogganing, and he comes back like a half an hour later. There was too much snow to toboggan down. They, you know, they got to make a run. There's just too much there. They're just too sinking much snow it. to toboggan. Too much snow, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, let me ask you this: Do you enjoy shoveling? Does you, is this something that you absolutely dread, or do you put on the woolies? Do you get out there? You make a physical activity of it. It's like a workout, Dave. Does anybody enjoy shoveling? I, I'd love to hear if people do. I don't. I, I. I can't imagine. I mean, I was. I was out shoveling this morning. My neighbor had her daughter out. She loved it, and I said, "You know, I gotta take a picture of that because in 15 years, when she's shoveling the the walk, she's going to hate it, and you have to remind her that she used to love it because nobody likes shoveling snow. Do no, they? No, 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 no. Uh, I mean, all right, give, Tom's. Yeah, sorry. Go I, ahead, Tom. Give me like, a, give me like a set of headphones and any way to forget that it's bloody cold out. And yeah, I'll be fine. But otherwise, I, I have to agree with you. Who enjoys shoveling? <laughs> Lisa, are you? Uh, well, you're you're an apartment dweller, right? Yeah, so I was going to say for that's, you. that's uh, one of for the you. Well, that's one of the perks. <laughs> the I do, the only thing I might have to shovel is my balcony. But like that's you know yeah. it's, it's fine. That's the perk of living in a high rise. I can just watch everyone else shovel. <laughs> And you know what? Shoveling off a balcony, that's just a nice little uh, bit of a taste of what it's like. Uh, it feels real good, and then you don't have much to do, and you move on. Uh, that's a good point. I have a snowblower, which, uh, you know, for, for the te- first 10 years we had the house, I didn't have a snowblower. I just did it by hand. And then as I got over, I was like, screw this. I'm like, uh, I'm getting some help. And I must admit, uh, like today, it took me like a half an hour to even get it out. But once you get going, I kind of, you know, it's the motorhead in me. I'm, I'm like a kid with a Tonka toy. I, um, you know, I, I can go for a while and then you fill up the, uh, the gas and then you start doing the neighbors. The next thing you know, they're bringing your hot toddies. It's a great evening. That's what's happening after 6 o'clock for me. All right, table heads, thanks so much. Uh, great job, Dave Woodard, Lisa Pileski, and Tom McKay. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of chatter uh, when we talk about COVID-19 and protocol. It's spacing, it's masks, it's filtration. Uh, and of course, vaccination, all uh, tools in the toolbox, as the politicians say. What is it about a HEPA filter? Uh, what are these? What makes them so great? And how can they help us? Jeffrey Siegel is with us, civil engineering professor, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Jeffrey, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Sure, thanks. What is a HEPA filter? How is it different from others? Okay, so fundamentally, a HEPA filter is two things. It's a fan that moves the air. And it's a filter that removes particles, including respiratory particles that might contain the virus from the air. And so what makes a HEPA filter good is, first of all, that filter is very efficient. That's important. But what makes a filter actually effective in something like a classroom is that it has to move enough air to kind of to actually clean the air in the room. So is a HEPA HEPA filter, is it a design difference than a standard, you know, like a furnace filter or anything else like you would see? Yeah. So HEPA um, is, if if the manufacturers are being accurate, it's tested to a particular standard. And that means it removes essentially 99.97% or more of all particles. Now, obviously, this depends on the filter itself, and and you're talking about its efficiency. How long before they are saturated? How long before they've reached capacity and you have to change them? Okay, so I'm going to give you the nice professor answer, which is it depends. But uh, (laughs) it really depends on the, you know, how dirty the air is it's cleaning, 
how much it's being run uh, and a whole lot of other factors, but kind of, so, and it is really specific to the particular filter, but let me just say kind of as a rule of thumb, a good HEPA filter in something like a classroom should run for, let's say six months or so, uh, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer, depending on the details, but that's kind of a rule of thumb. Now, would they be operating only, if I use the classroom as an example, since that's where we hear of it most, uh, are they only operated when the classroom is in session or do they operate 24 hours to clean the air once they're gone? Kids, kids are gone. Yeah. So the only benefit comes in them operating, you know, when people are there or maybe shortly after to, to clean the air. Right. Uh, how schools actually use them is probably there's as many stories as there are schools, but you know, ideally to preserve the length of the filter, um, they're just being used when the classrooms are occupied. So are these the key to keeping any close um, uh, quarters safe, like a classroom? Uh, are, are these, do they do the job? Are they, are they worth it? Yeah. So you said it really well in your introduction. They're kind of a tool in the toolbox, or I like to think of them as a layer of protection. They're definitely by themselves, usually not enough. And the problem is, is that, you know, they really have to turn the air over in the classroom and, you know, classrooms are pretty big. A lot of HEPA filters aren't that big. And so sure they help, uh, but, but they're probably not enough by themselves. Um, and, you know, you can use, for example, multiple filters. And uh, we've seen like shots of these in school in classrooms and such. Some of these are like floor models. They, they sit on the floor. They're, they're a reasonably good size, aren't they? Have we lost Jeffrey? Can you hear me? Have we I lost can hear Jeffrey? you. Oh, oh, there we go. You're back. Uh, oh, so, um, so the average size for one in a classroom would be how big? How how what size would be needed for the average classroom? So, uh, I think about it in terms of how many times it turns over the air in a classroom, right. and so ideally we would want to be turning over the air five or six times an hour. Uh, and that's a pretty big filter in most classrooms or maybe multiple filters. And you said the fan's a big part of this, obviously, as well as the filter. Yeah, everyone forgets the, the fan. And the fan is really important because moving the air is what's important. And the other piece I'd mention about the fan is that it's noisy, right? And if you talk mm. to teachers, they'll tell you that oh, they're really loud. And so there's kind of a real balance here. We obviously want to keep the classrooms as safe as we can by using these filters, but they are loud and there's kind of no perfect answer, but, um, but that's the reality. But if you want to sleep, they're great for creating white noise. I'm guessing Jeffrey, uh, that'd be nice. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey Siegel with a civil engineering professor, university of Toronto, talking about the HEPA filter. Jeff, thanks for the lesson. Uh, be well. Thanks. Thanks. You too. Take care. As we talked uh, last week, and also, I believe, with Dr. Sean Watley about this, I think the conversation is changing finally. I think that a lot of people have been uh, focusing on humiliating the last 10% to get vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated. I encourage everybody to do it. But I think we should be focusing on the real problem here now that the majority, the huge majority of us are vaccinated and moving through with this disease, uh, is that we st we focus on the healthcare care uh, situation. We've talked about this uh, in the past at great length. 
length. Uh, we spend more on health care than many and get less for that uh, as a result, uh, less beds. Uh, and yet uh, we brag about how great the health system is. Uh, and, and how it's one of the best in the world because it's, it includes everybody, which is great. But can't we do that and keep wait line, uh, wait times down, get rid of hallway medicine and be prepared with surge protection when a pandemic hits? Let's bring in Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canada's Medicare is uh, Failing and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back, Scott. Uh, this seems to be getting a, a little bit more traction. There's an article in the National Post today, Why Canada's Hospital Capacity Was So Easily Overwhelmed by COVID-19. Uh, we're getting numbers now in, in Ontario is one example, but this is right across the province. 14.5 million people in the province, 3,600 hospitalized uh, with uh, COVID-19, and that is crumbling uh, the system. Many have said if we had the vaccination rates of the U.S. that our system would have crumbled long ago. I don't want to keep beating a dead horse here, but instead, one of the reasons we have you back, Dr. Watley, what can we do to fix this? Because many are seeing it's either one or the other. We either have what we have or we go the opposite and have a U.S. system. Uh, you know, many say governments can't give any more money. Uh, the feds used to pay 50%. Now they're below 25, yet they don't want to take any private money. What are the solutions we should look for moving forward with this so we have an hour for this program right yeah (laughs) (laughs) so great question i mean it's so huge uh there have been multiple multiple um uh surveys studies uh commissions federal commissions um thought pieces put out so we're there's no shortage of ideas further furthermore there are no shortage of examples around the world to look at the problem we face right now is one of political will now part of it is it also has to do with people saying oh you're just trying to make an american system system no we're not trying to make an american system if you want change simply wanting change doesn't mean you want to be like the united states But once you push that argument to the side, the biggest roadblock, as far as I can see, is one of political will. We need politicians to step up and say, all right, I'm going to blink first. I'm going to be the one who steps across the line. I'm going to be the one who takes a step forward and tries something new. So is it more from federal government when they used to pay half? Is it more from government or is it a blend of private? So more from government would be more of the same. So uh, as your listeners know, uh, federal government promised to pay 50% of whatever the provinces wanted to spend, right? Started in 1948 with the hospital building, and then 1957 with whatever happened in hospitals, and then in 1966 with whatever doctors would do. So the federal government said, listen, we're going to pay 50% on each of those three big things if you go ahead and build a system. And so who wouldn't want to build a system, right? The The provinces got to take credit for building something that they only had to pay 50% of. But actually, mm-hmm. the feds only ever paid about 35%. They never paid the full 50%, and today they're paying around just over 20%, 22%, something like that. So simply saying, hey, feds, you owe us the 50% ticket is not going to get us where we need because mm. the gap is so huge. Wow. So uh, is the first problem, doctor, admitting that the system's broken? Because whenever we talk about this, you either get slapped with you want an American system, and then people just brag about how great it is. 
are, are people finally realizing it's not as great as what they think it is? I mean, the great staff, I mean, and they work so hard and they need more resources and such. That's not the issue. But it seems we don't even want to admit there's a problem here. So you nailed it. Um, if we can get the general public to say, listen, this is wrong, and I don't want to have to worry about not getting care when I get sick. The problem is, is so few of us actually need to go to a hospital yeah. in a year. So yeah. 91% of people over the age of 50 never need to go to an acute care institution. Our admission rate in Canada, across the whole country, 7,699 patients just checked it out on Kaihai per 100,000 population. So less mm. than 8% of us ever need to go into the hospital. And that 8% number come, uh, also includes a bunch of people who are admitted multiple times. Our number until one now, is- though, un- until now, uh, now COVID and everybody's using it. So has this brought it to everyone's attention now? Well, I think the lockdowns brought it to attention because the mm. lockdowns now put our healthy people inside homes. The people going to the hospital are still mostly the sick and old and, and people in really bad shape. You mentioned uh, 3,000 patients in, in hospital right now. Well, we have twenty almost 24,000 acute care beds in Ontario, so it's still a tiny fraction. What's really got people's attention is school's closed. Oh my gosh, I have to take care of my kids at home again. Oh, I'm yeah. worried my kids are going to burn the house down or they're not going to do their schoolwork. I mean, that's what And that's all to support the system. And that's all to exactly. support the system rather than the disease. Exactly. So, are we at a turning point here, doctor? I hope we are. And the turning point is this. So if you look at Ontario, we have, even if we say we have 2.3 beds per thousand, we have a bed gap just to get up to the average in Europe of about 37,000 beds. That's how short we are from the average offered to the citizens in Europe. No government can produce those beds. And furthermore, if it, let's say the current government said, well, we're going we're gonna to start building 37,000 beds, they would take the hit for that that another government after them would get credit for. So our system, the way it's structured, we can't get that gap filled. And so what we need to do as a country, I think, is to pivot towards growth and say, what do we want? Do we want care for people or not? And if we're going to go there, it's almost like building a nation from scratch, right? We have the bones here in place, great, but we need so much flesh on that skeleton. uh, People don't realize how big that gap is. So if we can get that message out... This is bigger than what government can do by itself. We need non-governmental solutions to help. And hopefully uh, now is the point where people are finally realizing that uh, there is way more work that needs to be done. Dr. Sean Watley with us, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How uh, Canadian Medicare is Failing. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. Thanks again, Scott. All right. Uh, you can imagine if you're uh, single or trying to get into a relationship, how COVID-19 has hampered that. Uh, if you're married, I guess if you're having a, in a great situation, it might be better. If you're in a not so great situation, it might be worse. Um, but the sales of condoms have dropped over the pandemic. What does that say? Uh, to talk more about all of this, Freya Norton is with us, sex and relationship consultant, erotic hypnomist. Uh, hypno- hypnotist and owner of the sensualist and is with us now freya thanks for the time i hope you're doing well hi i'm doing very well thank you what's an erotic hypnotist um that's a good question (laughs) i could go in a lot of different directions there but um essentially i use hypnosis to help people have better sex 
Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. All right, that's yeah. a whole other show. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about COVID nineteen hurt or help uh, people's sex lives. I guess it, oh, many times yeah. it depends on the situation. But man, it's been two years. Uh, people can't get out, but there's more time at home. Uh, what is you, what have you noticed from where you from where you sit? What I've noticed um, from my work, so I'm really speaking to people who are having problems. Um, it's hurting, even though there's mm. more time at home, more time with your partner. It's not actually time that's helpful to feeling sexy, and um, it's not just the home time that's a problem. The kids are there, too. People are staying home, yeah. um, sitting around on their computers doing homeschool, and without that time apart, there's no time to really get into the headspace of desiring your partner. That's a really good point. Hurting. Yeah, number one, everybody at home, but also uh, people are stressed out about this. So how do you get in... And maybe we'll start there. How do you how do you even think start to think about sex when you're thinking about all this other stuff? How, what do you do? Right, right. Well, th- that is a big thing because if you're if you're in a constant low level stress situation, you're not mm. feeling sexy physically, and you're also not having access to sexy thoughts. You're not sitting there fantasizing while you're listening to the news, um, ramming scary things down your throat twenty four seven. So. Um, what I recommend to people is to make a decision, if, if your sex life is suffering, to make a decision that you're going to carve out the space deliberately for sex. Because it tends to be the last thing on the menu. Yeah. You know, you get down to sex or you get down to creating erotic time together when everything else is taken care of. And what about planning sex? Because some people will say, well, if you plan it like that, and many have said that, you know, with busy, even before the pandemic, you got busy, ki- busy life, the kids, the whole thing, you got to plan it, you got to make a date night, you got to do whatever you have to do to, to schedule that appointment per se. Does that take that immediate, the, that immediacy out of it, that spontaneity? If you don't plan it, it's not going to happen. Good point. So planning is really, really important. And part of planning can also be planning time for you to get into an erotic headspace. So that may be taking time on your own to do deliberate things that are going to make you feel inspired, make you feel sexy. Maybe that means working out or reading erotic literature. Um, I wouldn't recommend necessarily escaping and just masturbating to pornography because you're kind of losing your mojo there instead of Mm. cultivating your mojo. Uh, what about, you, you talked about exercise. What about getting outside and getting that experience to kind of clear the head beforehand? It's essential. It's essential. Even if you're not going to exercise just before you, you have sex, but taking that time to get outside every day, go for a walk around the block. It's the least that you can do. But you have to stay physical because not, it doesn't just help you hormonally to, to improve um, your natural libido, but it also improves your self-image. Because a lot of people who don't want to have sex are they're kind of avoiding feeling sexy because their bodies don't feel good. So it, it, when you think about it, the biggest challenge that people are having now is probably something that they had before the pandemic even existed, and that's finding time for this, carving out the time out you know of your busy schedule. There's finding time, but if it's important, then you're going to make time. Yeah, good and point. If, and there's nothing that's more important than your relationships, the quality of your relationships. So you have to actually deliberately make the time, whether you think you have it or not. And if you think about different times where maybe you were, uh, maybe you were at school and you were actually busy and there wasn't a lot of spare time to sneak away, you still made time to think about hmm. and to do secret little things, to do playful things. Maybe create a second, um, a private email account and a private messaging account and use those accounts only for messaging each other and 
saving sexy ideas, maybe saving a little um, learn something new every week or every month together and then try it out. Many have talked about many have talked about the stress and fatigue around the pandemic. And as you've mentioned, I mean, like you're interested in sex when all this stuff's going on uh, and and just the mental health aspect of of, you know, of the pandemic and and its effect that it has had on people uh, for two years. Talk about the advantages to having sex. Uh, for example, you know, people talk about go outside, work out, uh, get some fresh air, do whatever. But many have said that sex is the same thing. And maybe that's the way we should look at this. It's like a workout. It's like a stress relief. Because if you can get there, it, it's a great deal of help, is it not? It is. It is a workout. It is stress relief. Stress relief. It also can be seen as a meditation. It can be seen as a mental yeah. escape. It can be seen as a spiritual endeavor if that's the way you lean. And instead of thinking of it like pressure, oh, I need to perform now. Oh, I have to get in the mood. Instead, if you make the space where now you can let go of everything else in your life and be present only for intimacy, don't, don't think of it as a performance. Think of it as, okay, here's a time to reconnect and to discover and explore in each moment what we need from each other and what we want to give to each other and what we want to express. And sometimes it's going to look very exciting. Other times it's going to look more calm. But it's an escape where all of your focus is really just on each other. And that's extremely healthy. It's it's healthy for you mentally and emotionally. And afterwards, you leave that feeling like you've had an escape. And you could actually use that in your favor. Does the pandemic uh, give you an excuse to do this? I think people are always going to... (laughs) always going to come up with excuses why they should or shouldn't do things. And the kinds of people who want to have a good intimate life are going to use anything as an excuse to put that effort together. The kinds of people who are going to use some laundry on the floor to avoid having sex are going to (laughs) use the pandemic as a reason to avoid their partners. So good. Yeah. My question would be how important is it to you? to have a good intimate life with your partner because really that is the glue of the relationship. Freya Norton with a sex and relationship consultant, owner of The Sensualist. You can find out more at thesensualist.org and reminding you to keep this relationship healthy, healthy your sex life as well through this uh, global pandemic. Freya, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thanks for having me. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show, coming up after the news tonight at 6, and, of course, columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Scott, i got to tell you, it's a little loaded today, that are you well, because in a normal world <laughs> today, my wife and I would be about 200 kilometers off the coast of Miami on a cruise ship heading due south into the Caribbean. <sighs> Instead, we get the coldest snap of the year on the winter, and then this today. And, you know, I'm already bummed out that the cruise had to be canceled because of the whole can't-get-across-the-border kind of thing. But then you throw this in. So I I don't really know how to answer your question about hope you're well. I'm I'm here, and I'm keeping a Prince Charles stiff upper lip, but, um, boy, it's hard work today. 
You know, that being said, I'm feeling a change here, and I'm feeling a change in in travel as well. And I think a lot of people that were planning to get away uh, before Omicron hit, I mean, you know, we were supposed to go to a uh, uh, a wedding, a uh, destination wedding mm. in February, canceled, not going. Nice. Yeah. Uh, it's been, it's been since, since November now, I think. Anyway, um, but now they're saying that once this fear of Omicron is over, that it's going to take off. And there's a ton of people traveling now, Scott, that you don't realize we're living we're living this different world in canada here because of a a crumbling healthcare system but it's amazing how many people are traveling and they figure by the end of this month that that's it things are are, going to take off all right let's get going here Uh, are you surprised by how quickly uh canada's healthcare system has become overrun compared to other countries we hammered away at this last week i could feel the the mood changing but uh an interesting article in the national post uh why canadians hospital canada's hospital capacity was so easily overrun by uh, by COVID, and we talked about this before. Uh, it seemed we're more interested in getting the, in humiliating the last ten percent than actually filling uh, fixing uh, the healthcare system. Uh, Fourteen and a half million people in Ontario, three thirty six hundred hospitalized due to COVID, and we're crumbling. Uh, fourth uh, from the bottom when it comes to beds, yet we spend some of the highest prices. Uh, are you surprised how quickly this collapsed? Are Canadians getting the message instead of patting themselves on the back about how great this is? Well, let me back up then to something you just said 10 seconds ago. And and I think that's sort of the underlying thing about this is we've heard before, there are reports almost every year, um, I think usually by like the Fraser Institute that comes out with a thing about how much we're spending on health care and how little we're getting for our buck. And year yeah. after year, what ends up happening whenever I do the story on the show or I hear it anywhere else is people go, it's the Fraser Institute. They're a right-wing bunch of whatever, and who's listening to them? Well, yeah. the thing is, numbers, you can have opinions, but numbers are numbers. And, yeah. you know, if you discount based on the source, I think what you see here is something creeps up on you all of a sudden, and you realize what's going on. I think it's an enormous issue that we've overlooked for a long time, which is the what are you getting for what you pay for? And, I just and, had an expert. I just had an expert on that said, even if the government, federal government, was to go back to paying fifty percent, we still have such a gap we could not fix it. It needs big, big help. Well, and that comes to the other point that you and I talked about last week, and I did a call segment on it. And is are we at the point now where we are open to at least a conversation about partial privatization or some sort We're already there. We're already partially. Well, We're already well, partially privatized. And you know what? Nobody wants to admit this. Everybody just pats themselves on the back and says how great our system is. And when we, we talk about fixing it, they compare us to the Americans. And that argument is old. It's done. It's over. Now that everybody uh, or that you know seems to have had COVID and gone through this, we realize it's not the dangers of the disease. It's the dangers of having an incredibly inadequate healthcare system. This has nothing to do with the staff. This is a systematic issue. Uh, will this change? Do you think now that people will say, because, you know, the, people started, the Fed started cutting back on this because they knew the demographics. As the baby boomers get older, this is gonna, they just can't afford it. And that's well, what we're seeing. We're seeing so it crumble in front of our eyes. So let's talk about that privatization. I know we have very limited time, but let's talk about that. Because, again, I know it's a, it's a sacrilege to almost say it. And then, the privatization in a lot of ways that we're seeing now is 
a private company that government that hospitals are redirecting yes. things to, but it's still going through yep. the system as opposed to Correct. buying your way to the front of the line. Look, mm-hmm. where, where even if our governments at all levels were to say now, here's a huge problem. We've got to put a ton more money into this. Where exactly is that money, Scott, when we have $1.3 trillion in federal debt and 400 and something billion in provincial debt and every province has debt? Where, where is that money that's going to now do all this magical stuff with all the other things that we hear we're going to do yeah. to solve all of our problems? Where is that money coming from? And so it's a terrific idea. It's a wonderful idea. Here's a suggestion then to all the various levels of government. Find a bunch of things that are unessential, but that are nice things that win you votes and shuffle the money out of that into healthcare. There's a bunch of stuff that we do that wins lots of acclaim because, you know, everyone is a pet project or something else, or we have tons of people working it. Move some of that money, redirect it to where it needs to be, which may not be quite as sexy or may not win you as many votes. Then maybe we can talk about this. But to add another 30, 40, 50 billion dollars a year on top of what we're already, where is that money coming from? Yeah, good point. And, you know, our ignorance in, in just the fact we've ignored this, we've wrecked the system that everybody was patting themselves on the back for. There's nothing to, there's nothing to, yes, you're right. There's nothing to pat yourself on the back here about Canada's system other than it's universal. Other than that, we're way behind. And it's, it's amazing we can't walk and chew gum. It's fixable, but there have to be hard decisions. We can't always make the decision of just let's spend more. Yeah. Sometimes you have to make hard decisions and say, okay, what are we not going to spend on so we can spend more on something else? Scott Radley, Scott Radley show coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.